It's like the reality distortion field that people talked about with Steve Jobs, where he could walk into a room and he could convince you that the world was different than you thought it was before. And that was, that was really powerful. But that's got to be balanced by that growth mindset where you're actually open to new information and you're open to being wrong and you're open to challenging yourself. And if you don't have that growth mindset, I think that's when you go off the rails. That's John Dahl, co-founder and CEO of Mux. Mux's API makes it easier for developers to build their dream video experiences. They offer a number of essential streaming services as well as high quality data to power video streaming around the world. In this episode, we talk about democratizing videos, balancing confidence with a growth mindset, and having a purpose beyond your company. I'm Maureen Taylor. This is Think Like a Founder. You didn't want to be a founder. I mean, that's not how you started. You were majoring in philosophy, and then you actually got your degree in theology. So how did you get into software? I did a little bit of both growing up. Back when I was in high school, I started to teach myself how to program a little bit. But I went off to college, and I took CS classes, and I took philosophy classes, and I just thought the philosophy was so much more interesting. I think in reality, it's super useful. Honestly, if you're a founder, I think a liberal arts education is one of the best backgrounds you can have. But I think I also missed just studying CS and not actually applying it myself. I missed the creativity that there is in actually writing software. Writing software is actually really, really fun. And it's a creative endeavor. You're making something out of nothing. You're expressing really complex things in a grammar, which is the code. So I think I didn't see how much fun it was until after I graduated and got into the real world. I do think people who write code are like artists, that it's like a musician or an artist. I see no difference in that peculiarness. Also, you say that writing or programming is very similar to actual writing writing, but it's more like creating a verb rather than a noun. Tell us about that. When you write, you have ideas or you have a story you want to tell or you have a feeling that you want to express and you have to take that and you have to translate it into a language your native language or another language you've learned but like you're still doing this process of taking this idea and translating it and transcribing it in a language programming is a really similar kind of thing where you have this thing that you want to do and you have to find a way of expressing it in a language so I think a lot of the motion's the same. The verb noun thing is just that when you're writing in English or you know another language, you are creating something that kind of sits still. It's something that you can pick up and come to and read. Whereas software is a process. Like the definition of software is building a process. You're trying to express a process in language, which is much more like a verb. It's something that does something. I think it's a great way of putting it. It actually makes something happen in its essence, where writing can also promote, it can inspire, it can do all sorts of beautiful, beautiful things. So similar, and yet there's a balance between the two. Now, your mission at Mux is to democratize videos, and it's the foundation of the mission all the way back in 2010 when you started your very first company. So tell us about that democratizing videos. When you think about what is video, video is just a communication medium. And it's a very high bandwidth communication medium. You can express more in 10 seconds of video than you can in 10 seconds of looking at a picture or 10 seconds of reading. It doesn't mean it's better, but it means it's a higher bandwidth way to communicate. But the fact is, it's actually really hard to work with video. Like if you want to put an image online, if you're building a website and you want to add an image, you just add an image. 
And if you're building a website and you want to add video, you build complicated software. That's kind of the default, the state of the world. And we think that holds back people from using video as a way to communicate. Big companies can do it. They can afford big teams of engineers. They can afford to hire experts or train experts, but not everyone can do that. And so we think the internet is actually a better place if this fundamental technology of video is widely available. And it's not only the big tech companies that can do it well. You know, there's a lot of really interesting things happening in low code or no code movements where there's just a lot more demand for software in the world than there are experienced CS grads to, to write it. And so the result is like, we all got to work to make software easier. And so we're not literally no code, but I think we, we work with some no code platforms and definitely believe in that as an important direction. Do you think that no code and the movement around no code is similar to what some people used to call power to the people? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a way of making this thing of software more accessible to more people. Not everyone can go get a CS degree and devote their lives to becoming a better and better software engineer. And as an engineer, though, or as somebody who creates, when you look at no code, do you look at it as a diluted version of something that's artistic? Or do you think that actually it will become more ubiquitous than it is with a CS? You're asking me to evaluate the purity of no code, which is a hard thing to answer. I think you do give up some of that writing aspect that software development has. That doesn't mean no code is bad, but it, but it is a different sort of thing than actually sitting down with a programming language and starting and building something. When you founded your first company, you had to be, as you put it, scrappy. You didn't have a sales team or a marketing team. So instead you tried to turn customers themselves into promoters. How did that experience prepare you for founding your second company? I think in a lot of ways, every startup has to think in a kind of scrappy way. When you think about it, a startup has everything stacked against it. Like most of us are a really small number of people going after a big opportunity, maybe competing with some giant incumbents. So you got to think scrappy. You have to be able to do a lot with a little. That's one of our values, do a lot with a little. I think at my first company, we leaned into maybe what's now called product-led growth, which just means growing via having a credibly great product and building a good reputation around it. We did that partly by necessity because we couldn't afford a big sales team. So we had to grow by actually building a great product and, and getting the word out. And it worked well. And so we carried it to what we're doing with my second company. So you've been scrappy, you've been through that. As a growing company, things change all the time. And to keep an eye on that change, you have to be willing to learn and scale yourself, which is always a challenge. But I have found that most founders, you want to stay forever a student, and that is a characteristic. Certainly, it's more interesting to live that way than not. And you've said that that kind of growth mindset is what keeps visionary founders from becoming like con artists. Tell us more about that. There's a couple things. One is the fact that to succeed as a growing company, you have to go through so many different stages and the challenges at each stage are often pretty different. Like the way that you lead as a leader, a team of three people and 30 people and 300 people is very different. 3000, I have no idea how you do that. Hopefully someday I will, but you have to face different challenges. You have to learn and grow. And the skills that take you to the kind of canonical stages are product market fit, which maybe, you know, 20, 30 people and you get a little bit of revenue and 
the skills that take you there are different than maybe the next stage, which is growth, which is how do you take that product market fit and scale as big as you possibly can. And that's probably different than the next stage, which is maturity. Maybe you're not growing as fast. How do you start building profitability into the business at maturity? If you want to scale with the company, you have to scale yourself. You have to invest in your own skills, your own mindset, your health, all these kind of things. Same where we said, I do think that having been in the startup world for maybe 15 years, been in Silicon Valley for maybe 10 years, I've met a lot of people where you talk to them and you feel like they're trying to convince you of something that they don't even believe, or they're trying to convince themselves. It's the whole fake it till you make it thing, which is like kind of on trial right now yes, with Theranos. Like fake it till you make it is is in the news. And I've heard that many times put out as a positive thing. Like as a founder, you should fake it till you make it. I kind of don't agree. I think there is something really valuable about the idealism and the confidence to do something big. It's like the reality distortion field that people talked about with Steve Jobs, where he could walk into a room and he could convince you that the world was different than you thought it was before. And that was really powerful. But that's got to be balanced by that growth mindset where you're actually open to new information and you're open to being wrong and you're open to challenging yourself. And if you don't have that growth mindset, I think that's when you go off the rails. Well, there's a value thing that's going on. Faking it till you make it. I mean, the words are just terrible. And I think originally what it meant was keep it going until it gets traction and don't say, oh, woe is me. It doesn't mean lie and may pretend you're something that you're not. That's not what they're talking about. Somebody like Steve Jobs, he believed it. He saw it. He was crazy, but he wasn't lying to people either. So I think sometimes when things get institutionalized, there's a level of folk that might take it and make it into something else. There's people out there thinking about starting something. They have an itch that they want to scratch. There's something that they want to do. And maybe something's holding them back. What advice would you give to them? So I'll say it's really rewarding to build something that you have real ownership of. And really, it's something that you make happen. When you're a founder, you take something from nothing, from not existing to existing, which is creative and fun and rewarding. It's also hard. A lot of people who work in maybe technology today have the privilege that like, if something doesn't work out, they could probably do something else. And so the risk of starting something is maybe some savings or or things like that. I know that's also like a privilege not everyone has. And so for a lot of people like me, like I had to bootstrap my first company, I started a little consultancy and I had money coming in for projects and devoted all the extra time to starting something. Maybe it's a long way of saying that like, for someone like me, the downside was relatively low. Worst case scenario, I would go back and get a job. I didn't have to like mortgage my house. But the upside was great. I think the highs are a lot higher and the lows are a lot lower than when you work for someone else. There is a loneliness to it, isn't there? Yeah, there can be. It's why co-founders are really valuable. If you can find co-founders that you get along with, like actually the biggest cause of death of an early startup is co-founder disagreement. So it's not like a panacea. Co-founders can actually be hard, but if you're lucky enough to find co-founders like like I have that I actually trust, who trust me, who we get along with, it takes some of the loneliness away. COVID has been hard for the workplace. And those of us that are privileged to work, it has been an interesting time and challenging. What do you think the future of work does look like? I think there will be a lot more remote work and hybrid work in the future after the pandemic. I I think that's actually the default now. I think in 2019, remote was an exception. I think today, remote is the default, which is good and bad. Like It's great to be able to access good people who 
live all around the country, all around the, around the world. I think it'll actually be good for probably the country. I think it's good for people who don't live in San Francisco to be able to have access to, to these kind of jobs. One of my co-founders says he thinks having an office will become a perk. So we will go remote, but there's a lot of people who really do value in-person time in offices. And so, you know, just like you might say catered lunches is a perk, having an office will be a perk too that will be attractive to some people. And it's possible that it swings the other way in the future. Maybe five years from now, we all realize that actually most of us shouldn't be working remotely for one reason or other, but I don't know that yet. I don't know if that's what'll happen. So the ambiguity is interesting. And the big challenge now is the advantage of remote is you're more productive because you're not commuting. The advantage of in-person is collaboration and connection. So, huh, we need both. What do you think? I think we come down in a similar place where if we ever do return to a place where we're not worried about this pandemic, I probably will do half and half or something like that. I think there's also a, a bigger burden on travel where we will fly people into San Francisco who aren't here a lot more than maybe we would have otherwise. And I will travel and I want my leadership team to travel around the country and spend time with people because the human connection is important. So you know as well as I do that startups, it takes a lot of time. It takes blood, sweat and tears. It can be hard and it's a big weight on your shoulders. It's especially important to have meaning and purpose outside of it, something you believe in, because if you're so into it, it can become not so healthy. Just given the ups and downs of being a startup founder. If that's all you have, if all you have is your startup and you go through a downswing, that's really hard. But if it's a part of your life, and it you know it will be a big part of your life if you're a startup founder, but there's actually things that are more important to you than your startup. I think it can be grounding. I think it can make it easier to live through the down times. A startup's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And I think founders forget that sometimes. And so being able to play the long game is really valuable. And you gotta have something that you care about and means something to you other than just the success of this company. And what is it for you? Family, for sure. I have, I have two kids, I have a wife. And I tell my people, like, you're joining a startup. We all work hard. This is important. And there's more important things than this. And I want everyone who works in my company to have life outside of work that's more important than their job. That was John Dahl, co-founder and CEO of Mux. Mux's API makes it easier for developers to deliver unique video experiences for their audiences. You can learn more by going to mux.com. Join us next time on Think Like a Founder when I talk to Brad Wyatter, co-founder of Incentive Pilot. We talk about experimenting with multiple startups at once, how business problems are just personal problems in disguise, and shiny object syndrome. I'm Maureen Taylor. Thanks for listening.